Let me first say thank you for the announcement that you made today for my father-in-law, and please continue, as was done a moment ago, to pray for my wife. She'll be traveling back to Shreveport, back and forth every day to check on him. And if you are on the Facebook, feel free to friend me today, and all of the updates pertaining to that will be there. All prayers appreciated. I am very pleased to be here today. It is a great privilege to get to come back to Birmingham, Alabama. Only my second time here. I was here in 2013 with the Edwards Lake folks and had the opportunity to come back. And I consider it a real privilege to be among God's people. For most of us, it's a new relationship. We get to know each other and I'm enthralled by that. Thankful to the shepherds here. They're watching out for these sheep. And they've set aside a week like this, and they've had someone like me come in. I do not take that lightly. Uh, It's a very serious thing to get to come and present the Word to God's people. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to do that. We have sort of a theme we'll be working throughout the week. It will uh, unfold in the worship hour. We'll talk a little bit about what that theme is. And pretty much everything that will happen every night, Sunday night through Friday night, Lord willing, will feed back to that theme, and we'll talk a little bit about that in the worship hour. But before we get to any of that, and I would just say that no matter where the church is or who the preacher is or what the theme is or how the applications will work, everything begins right there. There is no study, no uh, approach we can take, no beginning to any week that has any value unless we first begin every week, gospel meeting or not, We begin every week fully focused and completely in tune with this. The sacrifice that Jesus made. The offering that we memorialize every week. And we're pretty clear on that, right? We're pretty clear that Jesus said, I will establish a remembrance of my covenant. There will be bread to represent the body that I give for you, and there will be the fruit of the vine to represent the blood, Matthew 26, of the covenant. Everybody in the room knows every week begins the exact same way, remembering Jesus. Nothing else matters. Did I say that already? Nothing. Unless we get our hearts in the right place on this. Now, if I ask you, how often should we partake of it? Everybody in the room knows Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week. We broke bread, and so that's what we do every single week. Have you ever had a religious friend ask you, so what's that about? Every week, every Sunday, you know, at our church we do it once a quarter, or twice a year, or around major holidays, and it's so meaningful and impactful and momentous. You do it every single Sunday? Doesn't it ever, and I had a friend kind of pause here searching for the right words, doesn't it ever, I don't know, you know lose something after doing it every single week? And what do you think I said? No way. Of course not. It's the single most important thing that any Christian does every week, and it's set up at the beginning of the week. And I made, you'd have been proud of me. Valiant first day of the week argument. But I remember getting in the car afterwards thinking, you know, he may have a point. If we aren't careful... Even though we're doing the right thing at the right time and even in the right way, if we aren't careful, even something as precious as our weekly memorial can become just that thing we do. That seven-minute thing we do between a prayer and some songs and a prayer and a sermon and a song and a prayer. It must 
mean more than that. So if it's okay with you, the little bit of time I've been given for the Bible class, I want to talk about getting our hearts and minds prepared to partake in a little while. And I think that that will set the stage for this week and every week, and certainly all the things we'll be studying. So that's what we'll do. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I need you to be looking at two verses in particular, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I am reading from the Message Bible by Eugene Peter. No, I'm not. I'm kidding. The, I may quote it this week, we'll see. The New American Standard Version that Bob uses, and so there'll be some familiarity there on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if it got down to what is the Lord's Supper supposed to be about, and someone asked you to make an argument, you would probably find yourself right here, and you're in the right spot. But what I want you to notice, instead of studying the entirety of a very familiar text, I want you to notice that every week, no matter who you are or where you live, if you are a Christian, You are responsible to God to accomplish two things every time you partake. Two things every time. The first one is found, and you know the context of verses 23 and following. The first one is found in verse 26. Verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. If we're not doing that, we're not doing it rightly. Even if the emblems are right and the timing is right and everything else is right, we must proclaim the excellencies. You can add all kinds of words here that would work. We need to proclaim the gravity, proclaim the intensity of the Lord's death, the value, the personal value of the Lord's death until He comes. Proclaim it, announce it, feel it, and utilize it. So that's one thing we must do. We have to become as well in tune with what he did and why he did it as we get the entire week long right at the beginning. Two things we must do. The first one is proclaim the power of the Lord's death every week until he returns. Can't let that wane. Here's the second thing, verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing... He is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And you might argue that this should come first. But I have two responsibilities. And the second one is, I've got to look inward, don't I? I can't partake of the value of what Jesus has done and the covenant of salvation and talk about the power of everything that he's done while I'm living some life I shouldn't be living. That would be hypocrisy, right? So there has to be this evaluation. Now, if you think about it, if we do this correctly... It's extremely useful. Think about the fact that for the rest of your life, no matter how long you get, one of the very first things you will do to begin every week of the rest of your life is self-examine your commitment to the Lord and then proclaim the value of His sacrifice to unite you with Him in fellowship. Isn't that great? That's what this is supposed to be, and that's what it's supposed to do. But that's going to take a little bit of work. Just doing the right thing at the right time in the right setting is not enough. We have to proclaim and examine. Proclaim and examine. So how do we do that? Well, there's no formula for that. Where I preach, we do Lord's Supper talks, where guys get up, do a little presentation on passages. Very useful to hear what guys have to say. But what I would like to do for a few minutes this morning... And by a few minutes, I mean like 40 minutes. You know how preachers talk, right? I want to share with you something that I read, I think it was about seven years ago. I was reading some lecture, blah, blah, blah series. You don't care what preachers read. But here's the point. There was a little paragraph in there 
about Jesus' death and a series of little reminders as to what happened and how, and this is, I'm a numbers guy, you're going to see this by the end of the week, you're going to think, this guy, what's the deal with the numbers? But if it can be sequenced in numbers, I can remember it. And I like the way it approached, so I started using it, and I think probably 90% of Sundays in the last seven years, some element of what you're about to see has folded itself into the Lord's Supper partaking for me. And so I want to share it with you, and it's a privilege to get to do so. What we're calling today's lesson is Jesus' death. That's what our examination will be, but we're looking at it by the numbers. And I think you'll see very early on how this works, one of these and two of those and three of those and four of these, and we'll work our way all the way up to the number seven, all right? So we're going to look at that together, and I hope that you'll follow along in our study. Look, of all the things we could talk about pertaining to the first day of the week and what we're going to do, it must begin in the right place. It doesn't begin with the church or with the Christian or any of that. It always will begin with the fact that there was only one Lord. And you say, well, that's pretty obvious. We flew this guy in to tell us that. There are no replacements. There are no substitutes. There is no honor worthy any that matches the honor worthy Him. There is only one Lord and one way. In Acts chapter 4, Peter said this, under great threat that he should stop preaching the gospel, he said, there is salvation, which is a sermon in and of itself. There is salvation. That's great news. Salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given by which we may be saved. Folks, not church, not family, not yourself, not our nation, not religion or spirituality. Salvation comes through one and one alone, our Lord and our Savior Jesus. Everything starts there. Who was perfect? Only one. Not just perfect, but who was willing to give their life, innocent, deserving of life, for the sake of those who deserve to die, only one. Who was able to be the agency, to be this mediator, to be this sacrifice, the Lamb for all mankind, only one. He had the three qualifications necessary, unique. There's nobody out there that even has one of the three. Jesus had all of the three. He was perfect, willing, and able, and He died. Folks, It doesn't matter how you do it, but every week begins with one, one Lord, one Savior, one King. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14 when he was talking to Philip? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. Do you remember the rest? By the way, let me just stop a moment. You see how I'm not wearing a coat today? Just for class. Don't panic. I know the rules. If I'm not wearing a coat and I come down here and I speak to you, you will speak back to me, right? But if I stand up here, you will not. And if I'm wearing a coat, it's it's over. Nobody talks when a guy's wearing a coat. So I may walk down here, but if you'll just sort of mouth it with your lips, I, I won't put you on the spot. I won't walk down there. But I'll tell you this. No one comes to the Father but through Him. There's one Lord. All right. Going back to that day when the one Lord fulfilled His purpose. 
Remember, we have two objectives. We need to look at him and we need to look at ourselves. And I think it's kind of a back and forth as we go through this process. So I would argue that there were, in fact, one Lord, and on his left and on his right, there were these two criminals. If you would open your Bibles there to Matthew chapter 27, I want to ask you a question. Matthew chapter 27, you know that there was a criminal on the left and a criminal on the right. How many, and recognize you only have three possible answers here, how many of those criminals was hurling abuse at Jesus? Don't make me do it. They both were. These are criminals. One of them's not a really great guy, and the other one's a really bad guy. They're both bad guys. They're criminals. They're on a cross because they sinned and they're getting what they deserve. So when you come to a passage like Matthew chapter 27 and you're looking maybe there at verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Don't be surprised by this just because you know the way the story ends. Can I just say something? The way the story ends is not an indication of the way the story begins. If somebody's saved in the end, it doesn't mean they were just a really good guy in the beginning. No, that's not what it means at all. It means they understand Jesus. They've come to understand Jesus. These men are both sinners, and it's almost like if you were going to paint. I'm not a painter. But if I was going to paint, is it it okay if I say this early? It's early in the week. I'm from Texas. And if I was going to paint a beautiful yellow rose of Texas. Do you guys have yellow roses? Dumb question. And I wanted a beautiful yellow rose. I would put it right in the middle of the canvas. And what color would you put around a yellow rose to make it stand out almost three-dimensionally? How about, how about white? You're supposed to go. Something pastel or pinkish. No. Something deep. Something dark. Dark, dark blue or gray or maybe even black. And it would cause it to come off the scene. When I see the one Lord, the perfect one, the sinless one, He is the yellow rose illuminating off of the hill. And to His left and to His right are sinners. People worthy to die getting exactly what they deserve. And if I could show you something really quickly, in Luke chapter 23, and go ahead and turn there, we'll be using this a couple of times. In Luke chapter 23, as the six-hour scene unfolded, one of the guys is kind of getting that picture a little bit, and I want you to see it. In Luke chapter 23, in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And, and this is what I need you to see, We indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. That's a powerful verse. We're dying because we're supposed to be dying. You're just going to tell him what he's supposed to do for you? Are you serious? He deserves to live. Folks, I'm going to ask you a question. Which of the two criminals are you? If I told you, I am just like the criminal on the cross, you'd say, oh, you mean the good one? No, there's no good one. I'm either one. I'll be both of them. I am a sinner, aren't you? And for my sin, I deserve to die, don't you? And if I die in the flesh and my soul perishes, I'm getting exactly what I have coming to me, wouldn't you? There's this huge gap between Jesus 
and these sinners. And it was when one of them noticed the difference that he changed his tune. You know what I do every week? I want to talk about the one Lord, and then I want to see that he's up here, and I'm just a criminal way down here. Which one? Either one. An abuse hurler. And as you start to notice the difference between his glory and your unworthiness, something happens inside of you. When you start thinking about the fact that Christ would make fellowship possible with criminals like us, our heart, our pride, by the way, goes, it's out. It's destroyed. But our yearning for Him burns ever brighter. Only one Lord and criminals like us. Now, there were three, of course, one, what a contrast there. There are three crosses that were there, and this is where we're going to start to see that ultimately there was a distinction between one criminal and the other, and we do need to talk about that. Just like it is in the world, the difference between people who are saved by Jesus and lost by Jesus is not their history. They all have sinful histories. You, me, and everybody else. There's something else, something different. And what will help us understand that is an identification of the crosses. So naturally, you can envision three crosses on Calvary's hill, and you know that they were literal cross-sections of wood, and these men were affixed to them, and they were hanged there, and Jesus by nails. But are you aware that the idea of a cross as imagery is somewhat common in the New Testament narrative? Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. I think I can show it to you easily. In Matthew chapter 16, maybe you're already thinking about this, in verse 24, Jesus uses the imagery of someone carrying a cross. And look, if you're carrying a cross, you're going to die. Let's just be clear. Nobody carries a cross, says, I think I'm done carrying a cross. I'm going to drop that and go do something else. If you're carrying a cross, it's the last thing you're going to do. You carry it, and then you die on it. Well, Jesus uses that sort of ending imagery in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 20, or Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, if this was a proper Bible class, I'd go around the room and ask you, what is this cross Christians are asked to bear? Contextually, contextually, it looks like the shame and humiliation of Christianity. He was willing to bear this load of maligning by the world and carry it all the way to death, knowing that it would provide life in God, and he's asking us to carry it. So a cross is figuratively represents a weight, watch this please, a weight, it's heavy, that you are willing to bear, no matter how challenging, all the way to your death. All right, let's return to Calvary. Three men. All of them are carrying a cross, a figurative cross, an emotional cross. All of them are carrying a weight, and they carried that weight, no matter how heavy, all the way through to death. And so let's begin with Jesus, because you can't do this, and I can't do this. This is the reason we're here today. This is the reason we are a church of Christ. We belong to Him because He was willing and able, as we established in our first point, to carry upon His shoulders the weight of redeeming the world. Do not try to think through how many pounds it would take 
to equal the weight of the redemption. If we understand our Hebrews 9.15 cross forward backwards stuff, not all that sure about all that Hebrews 9.15 stuff, but it could mean that all of the people who asked forgiveness before Jesus ever lived, their sins he had to carry to his death. Every sin that every saved person would commit for the rest of eternity that would be redeemed, he would have to carry. Jesus is the man in the middle, and he carries the cross that nobody here can carry, and that's why we love him. And that's why we serve him. Remember, we're proclaiming the Lord's excellencies until he comes. But then you've got these other two guys, and this is where they get a little different from one another. Both of them are willing to carry a cross all the way to the grave. One of them, and can I just tell you, this is pretty heavy stuff. He was willing to wear the weight of mockery, sinfulness, and rebellion. And I mean, he would not put it down. And it had to be heavy. Shame. Anybody like the weight of shame? Raise your hand if you like the weight of shame. I knew nobody would raise their hand. It was a trick. Humiliation. I hate those things. This criminal carried those things. And he mocked the Lord all the way to his death. And he died in that condition. You're right there back in Luke. Please go back with me to Luke chapter 23 once again. I just want you to notice that we mentioned that early on they were both hurling abuse at him. You saw that in Matthew 27. But even here now as we get near the end of this, in Luke chapter 23, we see that same behavior. Verse 39 He's hanging there. He's hurling abuse. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It was not a humble appeal. It was a mocking, challenging appeal. He was honorary. He was rebellious and he carried it. And look, if that's who you choose to be, it's a sad life. It's a heavy weight. But people carry it to their deaths all the time. I don't want to be this guy, folks. I don't want to be him. Let me ask you this, if Jesus carried the cross of redemption, I can't carry that. And one of them, that sinful cross of rebellion all the way to the grave, then what about our saved criminal, still a sinner early on, what weight do you think he carried? Starts with re, ends with penance. I go no further. You've maxed out your help. That's pretty heavy too. You ever done that? Absolutely identify the difference between you and the Savior, and you've been rebelling, and the weight of it is, is there, and you feel it every day, and, and you just drop that cross, but you pick up another one. The weight, the challenge, the difficulty of repenting before the Lord, and Matthew 16, walking for His cause. Every week, and I challenge you to think about it this morning, every week, you have to realize you are both criminals in the early setting. But unto death, you've got to pick which one you want to be. You can hold on to the rebellion. People do it all the time. Or you can carry a somewhat difficult and challenging weight of humility and repent of your sins and beg for mercy. Three crosses. Everybody carries one. Atheists and disciples alike. Which will you choose? Let me show you something else. One Lord. Two like us. Three, one of which we must choose. Number four, any ideas? Open your Bibles to John chapter 19. 
We are actually indebted to John's probably later written gospel to fill in some numbers on two or three of these aspects that we would not have from the gospels. In other words, the one I'm about to show you, I can't give you that number from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John helps us with this. There were at the base of the cross four soldiers. You remember these guys? Four soldiers. This is taught to us in at least four soldiers in John chapter 19, look in verses 23 and 24. John 19, 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garment and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, though I am certain they had no idea of this. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. All right, no argument here. These four guys are in the presence of the single most significant event in the history of all mankind. There is nothing of even near value of the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross for the sins of the people at the foot of it, behind it, and before it. What are these guys doing? What are they doing? They've got this garment, right? Can you see them? Can you see them at the foot of the cross? They're not looking up at the cross. He's dead or dying. They're tearing it. So the first thing they do is they take it and they tear it in half, right? Now you've got to measure that up and make sure your half's not bigger than my half. And then once we've decided that we kind of got the tear right, now you turn it this way and you tear it again. And now you have these four pieces. But if yours is a little bit larger than mine, that won't work. So we're kind of working through it and we're working our way and we each get equal parts. You've got to fight to get your equal parts. You don't want anybody getting more than you. But now you have this tunic. What do we do with it? If we tear it, we'll ruin it. It will be impossible to get it equal. So we're casting lots, throwing stones, drawing sticks. I don't know what they're doing. While the Son of God is pouring out His soul in death, Isaiah 53, these men can't even look up because of a word. Forgive me. Sorry, Bob. What's these guys' problem? What would we call it today? Oh, look at me giving things away. What do we call their problem? You guys ever had Ralph Walker preach here? He'll just walk up these aisles, lean in on them. I'm not going to do that. What would you call this? Greed? Did somebody say greed? Okay, they're greedy. All right. What are they greedy for? Stuff. If they really, really want... All right, here we go. Ready? If they really, really want materials, and they believe in the garnering of materials even more than a relationship with Jesus, what do you call that? I heard it. Pause for dramatic effect, I guess. Materialism. They're materialistic. They put more value in the accumulation of their part in that tunic than the sacrifice of the king. Now, this may surprise you, I don't know. But for me at least, of all seven, other than the one Lord, which will always, of course, take precedent, of the six that come after it, I spend more time thinking about these four guys than even the criminals. Because I've been these guys. You've been these guys before? 
Now we're sitting here on Sunday morning, we're doing what we always do, there's a talk, there's a song, there's all this going on, they pass the thing down, you take it, they pass the cup, you drink it, and, and yeah, I guess in the forefront I see what's happening, but, but really what's going on are all these other things. It's work, it's income, it's budget, it's what's for lunch, it's, it's all these tunic wagerings, it's all of these garment tearings that are taking my attention away, they are materialistic, and I, for one, have been that guy. So every week, I want to think about that. Lord, help me not be like these four men. Just for information's sake, this is where I would pray going into the partaking of the bread. I think these four things mentally prepare me to partake of the bread. So I would pray at this point. Couple things we can say. They're not impressed with what Jesus has done. They're not affected. They are self-centered. And you know, these are men whom Jesus died to save, and as, as are you, as is everyone. But they will never see it because of that tactile, textile stuff they get to hold in their hands. It's so tangible and real. And by the way, now is completely gone. Open your Bibles to Matthew 27 before we move on. Matthew chapter 27. Verse 54, this centurion, I don't have the details on this. I'm not sure if this centurion is one of the four. More likely, he would be over those four, probably, if you want to get technical about it. But he's most likely there when all this is happening. He may even have a piece of garment in his own pocket from all the things that transpired. But you know that after Jesus died, some pretty remarkable things happened in and around Jerusalem. And so in verse 54, here's what the Bible says, Matthew 27, 54. Now, the centurion... And those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, the text doesn't tell you. It just says there was an earthquake and other things happened. Do you remember what the other things were that happened? Kind of amazing things. The earthquakes. The veil. Dividing God and man is torn in two. You remember the third thing? Oh, no big deal. Just dead people rising from the grave and walking down the streets. So here's a guy who's tearing, he's, he's checking out his garment. He's going, yeah, I think I did pretty well. Yeah, I, th- I, I actually do think mine was a little bit more than the other guy's. Or maybe the, the guy who cast the lots in one, he's going, yes, and he's walking home and he can't wait to tell his wife. And on the way home, the earth starts shaking. And they come out and say, the veil has been ripped. And he sees dead people walking and he recognizes what he had missed before. Truly, I'm a fool. This was the Son of God. Does that ring any bells for you on what's coming? Can I tell you one day the earth's going to shake? I mean, the whole earth is going to shake. And the, the veil between heaven and earth will be ripped in two, and through it will come Christ and all of these angels in flaming fire, and the dead will be raised. And there will be two kinds of people in the world. You ready? Those who are staring at their garments, and after it all happens, they will say, truly, He was the Son of God. And those who before the earthquakes can lay their garments aside and say, truly, He is the Son of God. Which one are you? Can we say it now and put it aside and believe it now, or are we going to need the final judgment to tell us what we missed? Every week, I want to think about that. 
or soldiers, not me. He is the Son of God. Too late for them, perhaps. Definitely, definitely it will be too late for us. Here are a couple of other things. Let's get back to focusing on Jesus for the rest of the time that we have together. Number five, there were, by the descriptions that we have in the text, a series of external wounds. You could add more if you add sort of internal difficulties that our Lord was facing. But there were five wounds that Jesus suffered. One of them is, of course, the beatings upon his back. I never watched the Mel Gibson epic on the Passion of the Christ. I I wanted just the text to build a picture, not against it. But some of you have seen images like that, and so you know that the tattering and the tearing and the challenging and the pain that he had upon his back is just excruciating and unbelievable. He was beaten heavily upon his back and ripped to shreds. They placed a woven crown of thorns upon his head and then took a reed and hit him. Think about that. He is hurting. He is bleeding. He is in agony. And then John tells us, remember John 20 when Jesus appears to uh, the disciples and Thomas, who gets a little bit of a bad rap. Thomas wasn't there for the first interaction. He was there eight days later, but he definitely should not have doubted. I think they were all going through doubt problems is my point. But in John 20, Jesus said, look, put your fingers here. So the nails were driven through his hands and the nails were driven through his feet. And then upon his death, of course, he is pierced through the side and out comes both blood and water. And if you'd like a great description on why there was blood and why there was water, then ask Bob about that. He'll preach on that next week. But there's significance to both elements. Here's what I want you to see today, though. This man, God... The innocent one, the perfect one, shed his blood from the very top of his head down to the drippings at the base of his feet. He poured out everything, all of his blood in pain and humiliation. And you know what that means is, no questions, we have a little bit of a challenge on our hands. Because in just a few minutes, you're going to take one of these. And I'll remember this one's mine. Probably not. That's not very much, is it? It's potent. You drink grape juice, right? You know when you're drinking grape juice. You, you, feel, you can feel it going down, actually. It's quite a potent thing to drink. But that won't take long, will it? That, that's, that's a few seconds. You're going to drink it. You're going to think something. And on it goes, and you move on to sort of the next stage. So I consider it a pretty great challenge that during the partaking of this very little bit, I am supposed to capture the image and the idea of not a little bit of blood, but all of his blood, everything that he had. And I'm not going to tell you how to do that, but I'm going to tell you that this represents all of it, everything, the blood of the covenant. Can I just self-incriminate a moment? You know what this has come to represent to me a little bit? The amount of blood that I'm willing to shed for him. He poured out everything. I can give him a thimble full from time to time. So I've rewritten the book on that. This means all the blood that he gave, and it represents that. And what it reminds me is he's willing to give every single ounce of what he had in life, poured out in agony for me. What am I willing to give? We're so silly about that sometimes. The disparity between his pouring and what we're willing to shed. So as you can see, by considering the wounds and the blood and the sacrifice and the pouring, we're able to do both of the things 1 Corinthians 11 said. We proclaim the excellencies of what he gave, all of his blood, and we also get to self-examine a little bit how big is our thimble. 
on what we're willing to give of ourselves for the sake of the one who gave it all. Five wounds. The next one goes hand in hand with it. Any ideas what's coming next? I'm not going to ask you to answer unless you nod very affirmationally, in which I know you know, and I'll come down there and we'll talk about it. How long did Jesus suffer? The Bible dictates for us that the suffering of Jesus upon the cross took place over the course of six hours. You can go to Matthew 15. You can look at the beginning of it in that third hour, which would be about 9 a.m., all the way through the middle portion, the heat, the midday, enough time. And I think it, it maximized the humiliation middle of the day. Everybody could get out there to see him and hurl abuse at him. And then, of course, he died in that ninth hour, according to Jewish time, which would be three in the afternoon. So nine in the morning, all the way through the day into three o'clock in the afternoon. Six hours he hanged there. Public display he was willing to be. I have lots of information on this. And by the way, all of the sermons this week, everything we'll present, uh, I've got them in handout form, front and back. The same thing I'm looking at, you'll get And we'll have those on the back table. You can pick all that up after the sermon. I'm not a before sermon guy. I don't even understand why a preacher would give out his notes before he preaches it. Unless that's what y'all do here, in which case it's fine. But when we're done, you can pick them up on the way out and you can study them. So I've written a little bit here. And so I won't go through it too deeply. But there's this all kinds of literature written on what it would have been like to pour out all of that blood and give up that body. And to do so after already having been beaten, recall, affixed to a cross and hang there for six hours. It talks about dehydration. So dehydrated was he that his tongue was swollen. His eyes blinked as if it was a sandpaper moving over his cornea. The exhaustion of his muscles, the quivering of his lips, the nails in his hands and the, the nerve pain. It just goes on and on and on. And there, there are very different ways that Christians choose to remember that. But please, please, please remember it every week. Remember it. Six hours. Pure suffering and agony for you. I want to get to the last thing while we have time. Any ideas on number seven? One Lord, always one Lord. Two sinners, that's us. Big difference between you and me and Jesus. So we've all got to choose our cross, and I hope that you choose the cross of repentance. It's heavy, but it's worth it. Four soldiers couldn't even focus on the Lord, they're too busy. We need to put our attention upon Him. He is the Son of God. And then we pray. And then before the fruit of the vine comes around, we think about the five wounds, the pouring forth of blood in the six hours, and it leads us to the seventh thing. Any ideas? I don't know how many things Jesus said while He was on the cross. But I know that based on the record that we have, there are seven unique phrases Recorded in scriptures. Luke helps us a lot. John adds a lot to the element. We know of seven unique things that Jesus said. And I would tell you that I need five minutes to share that with you. Is that what that is, a five-minute bell? You probably remember some of them. In fact, most of us could. And and I would just say this, to sort of sum up this last point, and, and then we'll be done for the morning for the class. Memorize these seven things. Commit them to instant recall. Not just the Lord's Day morning, but at any time, at every time, you ought to be able to call to mind the seven things that you know that Jesus said. Because I'll tell you this, we've got the whole gospel message and all the New Testament letters, but just about everything you ever needed to know about the character of Jesus is taught to you by the words of a dying man. 
the things he chose to express to the people around him while he was giving his life. There are seven of them, and they subcategory into three points. So here you go. Number one, Jesus suffered. He suffered as a man. He didn't suffer as God without the pains of a man. He suffered as a man. He thirsted. He felt the impact upon his body, the dehydration, the sandpaper over his cornea, the nerve damage. He felt those things. He thirsted. The thirst that he spoke of showed that his body was going through a natural cycle. And he suffered emotionally. And I think that probably would hurt as much or worse. He quotes Psalm 22, which is really about getting the Israelites to go back and listen to Psalm 22, verse 1, and David, and see how Jesus and David worked together. But it also shows that it was a point of feeling very much forsaken and alone. Why have you forsaken me? The hours of darkness, which we haven't talked about this morning, may sort of articulate the abandonment of moment of the pain that he suffered. Never forget, Jesus suffered. He suffered in his body. And the garden, and the tears, the the sweat like blood, he suffered emotionally. But let me tell you about Jesus. Greatest message of all. During all of his suffering, pain, and agony, can I tell you? Our Savior loves. He loves people. These are three statements of his love. Father, forgive them. Who does Jesus love? Jesus loves people who don't love him at all. People who would murder him. Soldiers who wouldn't even look up at him. The persecutors around him. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He loves those who hate him. We need a little bit more of that in our life. We need a little bit more love and compassion and seeking of help for those who hate us. Stephen got the point. Stephen dies a short time later, says almost the exact same thing. So it's not just a Jesus thing. Christians can live this way. He loves those who hate him. He loves those who turn to him. But he gets to love them in a little bit of an extra special kind of way. He gets to bless them as well. You see, he loves those who hates him, but he can't bless them. He loves those who turn to him. Uh, Father, uh, or he said, today uh, you will be with me in paradise because he turns, the criminal turns to Jesus and asks for salvation. And Jesus sees a man turning to him in repentance. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He loves the the, uh, criminal and he's able to bless him. And he loves and affectionately cares for and nourishes his family. Remember to John and Mary, behold your mother and behold your son. He loved them. He looked out for them. He prepared and aided them. You can hate Him and He'll still love you. But if you repent and turn to Him, He'll bless you. And if you choose to be a part of His family, He will nourish you forever. Forever. Jesus suffered. Even in it, Jesus loved. And lastly, Jesus trusted. He trusted God, didn't He? I mean, that's trust, to let yourself die upon a cross, and at the end to say, it is finished. The work of the Lord in me is finished. Father, into thy hands, very much like Stephen, not long afterwards, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He went through that deep, dark veil that you and I neither have traveled just yet. He would pass through that veil, through the depths of death, to the other side, and he trusted God in that moment. Even in death. I'm going to tell you, you can trust God in anything if you can trust God in death. He gave himself to the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. And the Lord brought him back. The Father brought him back. And so it will be for us. If we're willing to suffer, 
We have love like Christ loved, and we trust that even death cannot separate us from the power of God. He will bring us back in glory. Two things you've got to do in a few minutes. Proclaim the Lord's death until He comes and examine yourself. I'm prayerful and hopeful that some of the things we've discussed today will give you some aid in accomplishing that important task. Thank you for your attention this morning. That's all I have.